Hello, my friends, and welcome to another episode of the Accidental Tomatoes podcast. I'm your host, Joe Webb, and this is a podcast for spiritual exiles, for all of us who are looking for faith and spirituality beyond the walls and fences and confines of institutional religion. This is the fourth episode of season number two of the podcast, and my guest for this episode is Rabbi Victor Yurecki, who leads the Benai Jacob Synagogue in Charleston, West Virginia. Rabbi Yurecki is a well-known leader in interfaith dialogue, both in his local region as well as um, nationwide. And he and I had a really interesting conversation about how important it is for people from different faith traditions, or even no faith tradition at all, to look beyond our dogma and doctrine and to seek to be in relationship with people who believe differently than we do. I've come to really appreciate Rabbi Yurecki as a new friend and as someone I can look to for deep wisdom and insight, and I think you'll enjoy our conversation together. So please give a warm Accidental Tomatoes welcome to Rabbi Victor Yurecki. I've grown in my own faith. I've learned to appreciate my own faith more. I've learned to question things within my own tradition to see if it actually does make sense. But I've also gained a richness to the beauty of religion that's found, the, the beauty that's found in all religions. So our, uh, our guest for this episode of the Accidental Tomatoes podcast is Rabbi Victor Yurecki. Um, Rabbi Yurecki leads the Benai Jacob um, Synagogue in Charleston, West Virginia. Uh, and I'm going to invite him to correct me on anything that I might get wrong or mispronounce. Um, but Rabbi, uh, welcome to the podcast. It's so gl- great to have you uh, as our guest for this episode. Um, so why don't you just um, kind of tell us a little bit about who you are, um, what you do, where you're doing it, and uh, and we'll just kind of let the conversation go from there. Thank you. Well, Joe, thank you. First of all, thank you for pronouncing my name correctly. That's, that already got, you've got points for that. Uh, <laughs> I Googled you, man. I'm doing my own. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, it's, it's an honor to be here. Thank you so much. Um, I've been in Charleston since 1986. This is my third, beginning my 35th year here in uh, B'nai Jacob Synagogue in Charleston. I graduated from the seminary um, and about a couple of weeks later came for my interview here. Uh, it was a rabbi's market back in the 80s. Now it's a congregational market. There's a lot more rabbis than congregations. But in those days, there was a lot of congregations and not a lot of rabbis. And so this was supposed to be my practice. West Virginia was this small little isolated little community um, that was going to be the stepping stone, listen, learn how to do an interview and then go to places like Florida. There was a congregation in uh, Nevada. There was another congregation in Canada. You know, Charleston would be a nice practice one. When we felt my, my fiance and I both came down to Charleston in March of 86 and we were just overwhelmed with the community here. Just loved the people, not just the Jewish community, but as we were walking on the boulevard, I'm not sure how you're familiar with Charleston, but yeah, yeah. Uh, the Canal Boulevard. We were walking, it was a beautiful afternoon on the Sabbath, the Jewish Shabbat, and we were walking and people were coming up to us that were not of the Jewish faith saying, Shalom, we we love the Jewish people, we love Israel. And I have the heart to tell them, I don't, I'm Jewish, I don't love every Jewish person. But, <laughs> but we were just coming from a, an environment of the big city of New York. This was a breath of fresh air. And uh, when they offered me the job that Saturday night after the interview, I mean, I couldn't say fat say yes fast enough. And it's been a love affair ever since. And so we've been here 35 years. 
That's fantastic. That's fantastic. You know, folks who aren't from West Virginia, Appalachia in general, I think often underestimate, you know, the region. Uh, You know, there's a lot of stereotypes out there for uh, for what Appalachia uh, may or may not be. And some of the stereotypes are true or based in truth. But, um, you know, the natural beauty of the area and the the kind of just very organic friendliness uh, of the folks here, I think, um, it's something that a lot of people I'm not sure really understand until they come and experience it for themselves. Yeah, I agree. I mean, we've had people ask, and when we have the occasional person that's thinking of relocating to West Virginia, their first question, if they're a member of the Jewish community, is there a lot of anti-Semitism? To which I always say, you know, I wear a head covering, a yarmulke, um, all the time. And I wear it out in public. I go to the most remote hollers you can imagine, probably. And at first, you might have some curiosity because there's, you know, we're very we're we're a, a significant minority but at the same time there's a curiosity there's an engagement and generally becomes a friendship and uh, a very warm friendship people just that's get that's great yeah in west virginia they want to know you yeah yeah i was gonna curiosity i think is a really good word um because you know because um it is such a small um demographic you know with i mean west virginia is a small state anyhow population wise um but is you know is largely very predominantly protestant um and and i can imagine like um you know not really encountering a lot of really antipathy um but that kind of curiosity um had to have been encouraging to you early on too i imagine yeah one of the stories to fast forward it didn't actually affect me but something that was i thought very telling about west virginia was um, when I became friends with one of the imams from our local um, Islamic association here in Charleston. He told me, he was, he was from Egypt, and his wife wore the hijab, and uh, her, her, her car, about a week into coming to Charleston, broke down on the highway. And within a matter of about 30 seconds, somebody in a pickup truck pulled over. Now, they saw the hijab. I'm sure they had questions about who that was, but immediately tried to help her. And he said he never forgot that. And that spoke to me of the importance of engagement, the importance of encounter that I think what's missing in West Virginia, as you said, where we, we, we have a very homogeneous population. Yeah, so the result, yeah. They don't know Muslims. They don't know Jews. But I think once they encounter and it's much more and if it becomes more than just transactional, if it becomes more than just my doctor is Muslim, but it becomes transformative. Um, let's dialogue together. I, w- I want to know, I hear this about Islam. I hear this about Judaism. Um, this passage in the Bible, uh, it, what does it mean to you as a Jewish person? You develop a relationship. And I think that is the, the touchstones that are very, that are critical to build a better and a more, I guess, open society. Yeah. Well, and that really leads um, into what I think is probably going to be the meat of our conversation is, you know, you, you've become really recognized, at least, you know, regionally here as a leader in our um, interfaith community, the interfaith dialogue. Um, and I, again, West Virginia specifically, but I think Appalachia in general. Why do, you, why do you find that dialogue between faith traditions to be so important? Wow, that's a that's a very important question and a good question. I will tell you, and I, I'm always honest and tell people, you know, my life and um, how I got to where I am today. But I came to West Virginia to Charleston 
coming from a much more traditional Orthodox background. And I remember from my training, uh, coming from that Orthodox seminary, that there really isn't purpose. There is no purpose for interfaith dialogue. That's what we were actually told. And the reason is because we have nothing to share with them. They have nothing to share with us. Um, we can work together on the common good. If there's projects, we can work together in a community. But the idea that we have something to say to Christians and Christians have something to say to Jews is, in an, and you can hear that among, uh, unfortunately, many in with religion. It's an anathema. It doesn't, there's no reason because our, our faith is true. Your faith is not, you know? Right. Um, so when I came to Charleston, that wasn't my focus. My focus was to deal and to be uh, faithful to the members of our congregation, our community, to um, build up their knowledge of the Jewish tradition and pretty much not have much to do with the Christian world. I was fortunate that along with my congregation, there's a temple, a reformed congregation in Charleston. And one of my first mentors here was a rabbi, Israel Kohler, who just passed away of blessed memory. And Rabbi Kohler had been doing interfaith work for years. Um, he'd been taking uh, groups to Israel. He'd been going to churches, uh, been speaking at the University of Charleston, uh, you know, writing articles in the newspaper. And shortly after I got here, he he I got a call from a church that wanted me to speak. And I called him. I said, can you do that for me? I really have no interest. He says, do it. He said, you will learn more about your own religion by doing that. They wow. will learn more about you and they will learn to appreciate our faith this is the type of things we need to do. He didn't say in so many words, but he says, these are the type of bridges we need to build. And almost got me kicking and screaming to do it. Mm. He was right, because what this dialogue did was to show not just our commonality, but our humanity that we share. I started having to, I guess the right word is, ask, answer the tougher questions. You know, not the questions from your congregants, but people that are genuinely trying to ask questions that, you know, they're worried they're going to offend you. But when yeah. you learn to try to answer those questions and they're not offending, they're curious. And yeah, what you're doing is a little curious. But when you learn to be able to answer those type of questions, you grow. You start asking your own questions about your own faith. You start growing. You start learning about why do you do the things that you do? Um, so I'm always grateful to Rabbi Kohler, who kind of pushed me in that direction. And the more I've done it, the more I've dialogued with both Christians first and then with members of the Islamic faith. Um, I've grown in my own faith. I've learned to appreciate my own faith more. I've learned to question things within my own tradition to see if it actually does make sense. But I've also gained a richness to the beauty of religion that's found, the, the beauty that's found in all religions. I never would have done it if it wasn't for Rabbi Kohler. And this yeah. was the perfect environment in West Virginia because I'm such a minority. So I'm I'm at churches more often than most Christians. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's something to be said. Um, earlier in some earlier episodes of the podcast, um, we did some episodes around like race relations and, and those kinds of topics. And there there is something to be said um for placing yourself in a minority kind of position. Now, obviously you didn't do that quite so much voluntarily as you did just kind of vocationally. But but I think even then to embrace that moment, to see that you're not in the dominant culture, I think if you're open to it, it has to allow you um, to have, I, I guess, a really healthy perspective on on the broader community. Does that make sense? Yeah, but you know what? I might argue the other way. And I'll tell you why, because just from personal experience, 
I'm, I'm looking back at, because we started the conversation I mentioned about the Orthodox Seminary. One of the, the reasons I saw at my seminary why there was no reason to be involved in interfaith activities is because when you're a minority, you're always in survival mode. Mm. And that's a, it's a challenge because, um, and I, and I, I think to myself, it's like, why are you spending so much time with, with others when you need to preserve your ship that's sinking because we're so small, we're such a small people. Um, we need to have every Jew engaged as possible. Why are you, I don't want to use the word wasting capital, but why are you wasting spiritual capital doing outreach? In other words, not for conversion purpose, but educational purpose. Right, right. And really, we need to educate our own people because um, for the Jew, we lost so many Jews during the Holocaust. Yeah. We're such a small people. There are billions of Christians. There's only maybe 16 to 18 million Jews in the, on the planet. Shouldn't we be more engaged as survival mode? So in some ways, I almost understand why the Jew felt, you know, challenged and under siege. But at the same time, I think when you are able to expose your your faith tradition to the light of day and share, I think there's a there's a richness and a beauty to it. It's for me, it's been wonderful because when I share some ideas and people on social media say, mm-hmm. "Whoa, that's a that's really beautiful," it makes you appreciate what you have. And yeah. it, it kind of opens you up and you're thinking no longer survival, but you're thinking much more about the importance of sharing. Yeah. And how you can thrive within the midst of that right. you know, beyond just survive. That's really right. fascinating. Now, I'm curious because, it, you know, I, again, coming from a Protestant tradition, I'm really familiar with our denominational trends and so forth. It does, is Judaism, ex- I, this is a hard question because I understand that Judaism is not just a faith tradition, but is also also an ethnicity, right? So, mm-hmm. and and I think that's hard for a lot of Christians to kind of separate that because we're we're more diverse ethnically, um, at, at least globally. You know, maybe not so much in West Virginia, but um, is Judaism seeing the same kind of decline in at least in in practicing? Um, um, Congregants, you know, is like you know, in Christianity, we're seeing this this rise of what we call the religious nuns, right? The the spiritual but not religious or no religious affiliation. Um, is Judaism experiencing similar kinds of of trends, at least as far as folks who practice their faith? Good question. Um, in many ways, it's the best of times and it's the worst of times for for religion in general, Judaism in specific, because on one hand. We are, for a people that has been in survival mode, we are living in the best of times because despite some rises in anti-Semitism, it is a very good time for a person to be Jewish, especially in America. Um, we live in relative security, um, much more open. Um, as I said, I walk around with a yarmulke in public. I'm not afraid. Back in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, that would have been a, a challenge. Mm, yeah. Um, the the challenge that Jewish people have is the there are many there are many challenges. One of the challenges we're facing right now is the assimilation factor, because as you mentioned, Judaism is more than just a religion. It's mm-hmm. it's a it's a culture. It's a civilization. It's a people. So the fact that we've had Jewish atheists and people that are not affiliated went to synagogue, that's an old story. I mean, that's not brand new, right? The problem that the Jewish people face is the next generation of Jews have 
for the most part, um, through intermarriage, through interfaith marriages, the 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 connection to the cultural aspects, to the people aspects, is weakening. The mm-hmm. bonds that kept even the most assimilated Jew in the past connected to the Jewish people, the classic reasons, well, because the the rest of the world hates us, um, <laughs> you know, those things are not there any longer. And so the fear that we have is we've always had a challenge of getting people to come to services. That's never been, that's always been a challenge for the Christian world. You had to be at church on Sunday. The Jewish world, not so much. The Saturday tradition, even back in the 30s and 40s, Jews, when they came to America, they had to work on Saturdays because mm-hmm. they, you know, this, they had blue laws, so they couldn't ha- open their stores on Sunday. If they couldn't open their stores on Saturday, they weren't allowed, you know, they couldn't survive in, in a business. So. The idea of the nuns was was there for the Jewish people. There were people that you never saw at services, but they were passionately connected to the Jewish people. Well, our challenge now is we have a new generation that's grown up that the 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 connections, both religious but also cultural and historic, are starting to weaken. And mm-hmm. that's the challenge of how do we gain that younger generation? Why why be Jewish is a is uh-huh. a major issue. Um, my parents couldn't understand that question. I couldn't understand that question. Why be Jewish? My parents, if you asked them, why be Jewish? Said, what, what would be the alternative? Be an anti-Semite? Because the world, when you know, my parents, you know, growing up in the 30s would have been Jew and then the world that hated them. For me, why be Jewish? It was a different dialogue. Why be Jewish? The reason is because there are Jews that are being persecuted around the world. While I have it good, I have an obligation to my brethren and my sisters of all over the world. That Israel is being, you know, uh, the challenges of survival for the Jewish people. I can't do that to my parents who talk about the Holocaust. The next generation, why be Jewish is a valid question because if you can't give them a, a real reason, not just because, that's not a strong enough answer to keep them engaged in the Jewish people and the history and the hopes and the dreams of our people. Yeah. Do you find that um, that this sort of interfaith dialogue that we've been talking about is is helpful in that conversation with the younger generation? Is that something that that maybe they find attractive that helps them uh, kind of maintain their their faith tradition? And why I said it's the best of times, it's the worst of times. We are seeing, and and West Virginia especially because of the declining population, we are seeing so many young people not engaged at all, partially because in West Virginia, they're not here. But those that are here, they're not as engaged. But I've noticed in social media, there is an uptick. I'm getting more and more of my former bar and bat mitzvah students that continue to be engaged on social media, things that I write. they're clearly there. There's a spiritual connection. There is a cultural connection to our people, but they're not finding it at synagogues and temples, both here locally, but around the country, because yeah. they're not engaged in other congregations necessarily, or if they are, it's it's not the, the same organic connection that their parents and their grandparents used to be, that you know they were... F- you know, the church, the synagogue, the temple meant everything to them. Now, it doesn't mean everything. It's just one piece of their lives. Um, and we haven't figured out how to get those, and I wouldn't call them none of the aboves, but those that, I guess their their souls are still connected, but we haven't found a way to bring them a little bit more physically closer. Mm. Mm. That really resonates with me from, just from our United Methodist perspective as well. Um, one of the things that 
that we've been seeing during the the era of COVID um, is a re-engagement or, or maybe it's all new engagement from, um, especially from millennials and Gen Z. Um, I, I'm not sure that a lot of them are sitting through, you know, hour and a half long online church services, um, but but they do seem to be engaging in conversations mm-hmm. uh, with some of my clergy colleagues around the conference, for instance. Um, I'm, I, I've been talking to folks who are hearing from younger people who said, you know, I saw part of your sermon and what, something you said really resonated with me. And that person would have probably never wandered into their church building otherwise, but because we've got this this new opportunity to engage. So I think that I, I find that really interesting, um, the, the kind of parallels there. And again, you know, this idea that we're talking, our faith traditions are talking to one another, right? Instead of past one another or at one another. Um, I, I just find as somebody who's a, a parent of a millennial and a Gen Z, um, like I, I think that's an important um, value in their lives, right? To be involved in their world in a bigger way and in a less exclusivistic kind of way. Yeah, you made two very important points. The second one, very important, and the idea that they're they're seeing the breakdown in a good way of the walls that, mm. you know, there's Methodists, there's Presbyterians, there's Jewish, and it's Jewish, it's Orthodox, conservative, reform. Labels don't mean much to them. They, yeah. they are, I, they do have a spirituality to them. They do want to talk about God. They do want to talk about texts and they're interested in these things, but not with the models that we've been used to. And religion is slow to break down those models because we haven't figured out how to do it. Part of it is because we're institutional. Um, right. You know, this is how we've always done it. Um, and I can see that that's that message. The message is okay, but the delivery is simply not working. And I, you know, I, I'm the first person to admit that I'm starting to be at that age group where I, I'm not figuring out what will engage the young people. But again, I do see in the short messages that I put on Facebook, on Twitter, that I'm surprised at that some of the younger people that are responding. I'm surprised by some of the people that are Christian. I think I get more response from Christians than I do from Jews sometimes. I get more response from the younger generation than I do from their parents and grandparents. Because from grandparents and, and parents, the way you express your Jewish Devotion is by going to synagogue, going to church, going to these things. Um, that's not how they understand it. Yeah. And we're saying as an older as an older generation, we're saying, well, therefore, they're, you know, they're not interested. No, they are interested, but we're not tapping into how, figuring out how to do it. Yeah. Well, I, one of the ways that I kind of I, I think you and I, I'm sure we met somewhere because we run in a lot of the same circles. West Virginia is not that big. Um, and, and so I, I'm because I'm sure we've been in the same place at the same time. But one of the ways I kind of discovered what you were doing on social media was through some of the younger um, United Methodist clergy in our conference, mm-hmm. um, Derek Biondi and Derek. Um, some of those folks, you know, that you, I know, you know, uh, from your interfaith work in Charleston and, you know, they're 20 something, 30 somethings and seeing the way that they're engaging with your work um, as I, they see it as a, as a, valid and faithful expression of their Christian witness, I think, to engage with what you're saying, you know, from a very Jewish standpoint. And I'm inspired by their work because I see that, especially in the last few years, I've started to branch out and do work in 
the more of the national uh, community work um, for poverty, for issues that are on the border, for example. So I'm meeting young rabbis as well, uh, young spiritual leaders of all denominations. And what I see is an excitement. And I've seen Derek and, and many of the members, the younger members of the Methodist Church, for example, they're, they're, there's an excitement to what they're bringing. I mean, we're, I'm, you know, I'm going to be 60 and this is what I do. This is how I do it. You know, this is our services. I'm very comfortable with it, but I'm watching them um, admiringly, not enviously, but admiring it because I see it's making me feel good about the future. Because again, as we started the conversation, we are seeing a decline in population. Uh, the Jewish population is declining in West Virginia. Part of it is because of economic forces that we have no control over. But part of it is the older generation are the ones that generally go to services, attend classes, mm -hmm. and the younger generation's not. But we have that tendency to wring our hands and be very frustrated. What can we do to bring them? And the truth is maybe we're the wrong messengers. Um, you know, we have a good message, but there's a younger generation that's out there. We're not giving them a chance to breathe because when I meet these young leaders like Derek and I say, man, I mean, religion's got a future. Yeah. Uh, they're they're going to figure it out and we're glad to be resources, but I'd love to just, you know, just stand back and watch them because they're engaging, they're thoughtful and they're relating to people on their level. And that's what religion does best. Yeah. 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 That, you know, that relating on their level, I, I, I'm involved in, in creating a new kind of non-traditional faith community up here in the, in the Parkersburg area. And one of the, you know, some of the research that's out there about like, for new faith communities, church plants, whatever you want to call it, is that it's difficult for any particular leader to engage with people who are more than 15 years either older or younger than they are. And I'm kind of, you know, I'm 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 in the same boat as you. I'm 57, creeping up rapidly on 60. And while I've got, you know, a lot of friends that are, you know, 20 years younger than me, to get them consistently engaged in a community is just, it's a tall order. Um, and it's largely because, like, in a lot of ways, we don't speak the same language, you know, as hard as as hard as I might try to keep up, right? Um, it's just such a, a rapidly evolving uh, culture for, um, for especially for millennials and Gen Z. And um, so having, you know, I'm glad to, to hear you being so excited about the young leaders that are out there across faith, faith traditions, because I see that too. And it gives me a lot of reason um, to be excited for, for what's to come. And, and what you said was a good point, because when I, uh, when I was in Guatemala with several young spiritual leaders of the Jewish community and the services, because we, we represent a wide spectrum of the Jewish tradition, there was about uh, 15 or 16 of us. And I was one of the older ones there. Um, but the younger ones with the guitar, Again, I'm much more traditional. Our congregation doesn't have music on the Sabbath, okay? Let's not even talk about using electronics on the Sabbath. <laughs> but um, the idea of using a guitar and, and using a ball of yarn to explain the Torah portion for the week, you know? These are things like, whoa, wait, that's new age. But the more I saw it, I thought, this is really kind of cool. Yeah. But if I would translate and try to bring that here, it won't work. Because as you said, there's such an age gap. Um, both the younger generation might not come in the numbers yet. The older generation will look at this with horror because you're just changing over everything that they're, they're holding dear. So how do you balance those two? And I, I know that ministers and priests and rabbis are struggling with that now. Yeah. 
Sorry to interrupt the conversation, but I wanted to take just a minute to thank some of the folks that help us make the Accidental Tomatoes podcast happen through our Patreon giving platform. For as little as $2 a month, you can be part of a growing group of people who are committed to helping create and curate all the great content for the Accidental Tomatoes community. We're grateful for the contributions of all of our patrons, and I'd like to recognize our master gardener-level contributors, Jen and Harry Morgan, and Kevin and Heather Malcolm. To learn more about how you can support this podcast and the community we're creating, just go to patreon.com slash accidentaltomatoes. You can also support our work by simply leaving us a rating and review on your favorite streaming app. That helps other folks find our community and participate in the conversation. And now, back to the podcast. Um, to move in just slightly a different direction, but I think I think it's kind of on the same continuum as, as we've been talking about. Um, I, I think I mentioned to you kind of offline before we started recording here that... Um, you know, as as someone who's seminary trained myself, you know, my knowledge of of the Hebrew scriptures have largely been presented to me through a Christian lens, from a Christian perspective. But I am seeing a growing number of, again, young younger um, Christian folks, but but some some folks our age too, who are starting to try really hard to to more faithfully understand Jesus in his Jewish context, which means at some point we've got to try to remove that as much as we can, remove ourselves from that Christian perspective. So I think the the question that I'm kind of interested in, and and I want to be careful because I'm I'm painting in very broad strokes here, but if there's um is there anything about Judaism that you you tend to think that Christians maybe, or at least a lot of Christians, kind of broadly misunderstand that if we understood it better might create um, better relationships between our faith communities and maybe even a better understanding of our own faith. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Um, but I can actually mirror it because are there things that the Jewish community, Jewish people need to know about Christianity that would help Jews understand more about Christianity? Um, through these 30 plus years of engagement in interfaith dialogue, that's what I've realized. There's a lot of there's a lot of misconception that Jews have about Christians. Mm. You know, and the same level, um, one of the most basic ones is the emphasis of law versus the emphasis of love. There's an equal number of passages in the Jewish tradition emphasizing the idea of God and, and love. And there is quite a lot of law in Jewish in Christian tradition. Yeah. Um, the question is, you know, where is the motor and where, you know, which which side of the car is that motor is? So it's possible that the loved engine, if you will, is in the front of Christianity and the back of Judaism because Judaism is um, a legalistic uh, point. But those things will only be discovered by talking and mm. and seeing each other's texts. I will be forever grateful uh, when my kids years ago went to Charleston Catholic for their high school education. And the the two people that were instrumental in teaching theology there, uh, Bill and Diana, Diana Maley, they realized they had a very interesting but a good problem. They have a rabbi's daughter starting <laughs> theology. And they came and talked to me. And I remember uh, they said, well, what are we going to do here? Because, um, you know, your daughter is Jewish and ninth grade theology. We start doing the New Testament. We're, we're teaching that. And I didn't have a problem with it at all. I said, I think it would be very helpful. And I said, well, 
would it be all right if she would keep a journal as she read the book of Matthew and read it with you through Jewish eyes? And what are you seeing? Okay. And what that taught me was when we look at a sacred text, we have a tendency to bring something to the table. We all bring something to the table. So while certain passages to Christians are beautiful, magnificent, to Jews, that's very scary. Okay. Mm. And by the way, when a, when a Christian would read the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament, you're reading it from a Christian perspective. Exactly. And therefore, it's, you know, it's not really resonating. So like, wait a second, I'm not connecting the dots here. Well, what's the solution? The solution is for a Jew and a Christian to be able to look at the text together. Mm, yeah. Okay? And uh, my dream is when I retire is to be able to do that on a regular basis. And we can call it the joy of text, you know, where we can all engage. It could be you add the Quran to the mix yeah. and have people of faith come together, not just willy nilly, but I would imagine trying to have people that are both fluent in Arabic for the Quran, Hebrew for the Hebrew Bible, someone that's fluent in Greek and Latin that can understand the, the New Testament. And then take our sacred passages and discuss it through different lenses. Mm. What happened when when my daughter and I started going through the book of Matthew was both passages that I can understand why they were touchstones for anti-Semitism, but I also understood how a Christian would read it differently today. And that was very helpful. Mm. And so my, I guess my answer to you is, um, the best way to do this is to open our doors together. Yeah. And so if I have a Torah class, my dream is to have an equal number of people that are not of the Jewish faith and, and actually even people that are of no faith because these texts are very important. These texts have endured the, you know, the test of time. They've yeah. also moved people. Why did they move people? And what better way to understand them than to listen to them in the original text and also see how people who who believe that they're sacred, why are they sacred? And then you have other people that are looking at it from a different perspective saying, you know, based on my tradition, now I'm seeing this text and this is what I'm saying. Well, when I hear that, that adds another bud to this flower, um, to this branch that I, you know, that I thought was sacred. I've had Christians and atheists come to my Torah classes and have given me a perspective on the Hebrew Bible that I never saw because I'm looking at it from one, ang from one angle. Yeah. So I guess that's, that's the, it's a long answer, but I guess no, no. there's a lot of misconceptions, but the misconceptions go both ways. We understand Christianity probably with a very simplistic approach because we hear, you know, we hear sound bites, you know, this is what Christianity says, but, but yeah, but look what they do. Well, wait a second. I don't think you really understand how Christians understand the text. Yeah, that's so. It I, it makes me think, you know, because a lot of times we'll hear in in, in Christian circles you know, we have to remember that Jesus was a Jew, right? And that's, and, but most people can get that. I think a lot of us forget that Paul also was Jewish, right? And because we tend to read, you know, his writings much more through what we would think of as a post-Jewish Christian mm -hmm. lens. Um, but Paul was a, you know, a faithful Jew. And he was, I had a, I had a, a professor in seminary. Um, I think it was a, a theology of John Wesley class. Um, but I remember him saying um, something to the effect that the New Testament, the Quran, and the Book of Mormon are all attempts to interpret the Old Testament. Mm. And I, I just thought that was kind of profound, but also really helpful. 
<laughs> you know, to, to think of it that way. Um, because I think a lot of times, especially in like evangelical forms of Christianity, if we look at the Old Testament at all, it's as a contrast to the New Testament rather than as something foundational. But when you talk about the New Testament interpreting those texts, that gives you a whole different kind of perspective on it, I think. From the Christian perspective, you know, the the passage of an eye for an eye mm, is yeah. very negative. For us, it's a very positive connotation. In fact, there is so much written about the progressive nature of that text and what yeah. that actually does. Um, from the on the other spectrum, Jews will look at many of the things in the gospel and the things that Jesus did as well. This was very much against Judaism. However, when you open up the Talmud, which is the oral traditions, the sixty-three volume book that interprets and tries to understand the Hebrew Bible. You mm. see stories of rabbis that, and I've had Christians go and say, wait a second, these sound like the same parables that Jesus would have said. And Jesus actually did say, said, yeah, because we came from the same source yeah. and the ideas are the same. Now, did they get filtered a little different? Maybe. Um, does history have some impact? Yes. Um, does location have a lot to do with it? Um, of course, but we see the commonalities. And then when you study the Quran, you've got the similar passages. I mean, the, I can't tell you the number of times I've studied with an imam and the imam will, will point out a passage. And I go, oh my gosh, that's exactly how we interpret it. And then they'll say, yeah, we share so much together. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you mentioned the the Talmud and the, the Talmudic tradition, which I think like that could be a whole other podcast because I just find... Uh, that so fascinating. And the, you know, we have, we, we kind of have this notion in, not in all of Christianity, but in a lot of, especially again, the more evangelical traditions that, um, that somehow we're supposed to agree on our interpretations of everything all of the time. Right. And it, which is, I think personally, I think is a horrible misconception. The Talmudic tradition shows us that, you know, within your faith tradition, disagreement over the text is actually a rich part of the heritage of of what it means to be Jewish, right? And I, and I feel like we've lost a little bit of that um, in Christianity. There's a famous story in the Talmud. Um, it's not a Midrash. It's actually a story in the, Talm uh, in the Talmud. It's not a legend. Um, though, I'll say I take it seriously, not literally, because some of the story is kind of fanciful. But there was one rabbi who disagreed with all the other rabbis on an issue of law. And they're arguing and they, you know, he keeps bringing proof texts from the, from the Torah, from the five books of Moses to buttress his opinion, but he's in the minority. And in Jewish tradition, it goes by the majority rule. They, you know, the rabbis have to rule on a law. Well, the majority rules. Well, the rabbi is absolutely convinced he's right because he's always won every decision with regards to this very particular law. It's about ritual purity. That's how obscure the topic was, but he was the expert at it. And he, he said, if I'm right, I want that carob tree to move a hundred feet this way or whatever the equivalent cubits, whatever it was. And the tree does. And one of the rabbis said, you can't bring a proof from a tree. Right? So the next rabbi, the rabbi then says, if I'm right, I want that stream to change course. And sure enough, the stream changes course. And I says, you can't bring proof from water. You got to bring proof from, from the text and you haven't, you haven't convinced us. Finally, after series and series of these things, he says, if I'm right, I want the walls of this academy to start closing in on us, right? And sure enough, the walls start closing in. And one of the rabbis turns to the wall and says, you're not a part of this conversation. And the walls, that's why I said it's kind of fanciful, but it's a beautiful story. The walls 
go back to normal, but not totally in honor of all rabbis there. Okay. Mm. And then finally, he says, if I'm right, I want God himself to say I'm right. And sure enough, a voice from heaven says, he's right. Okay. And one of the rabbis points his finger up at heaven and says, it is not in heaven. And the point is, when God gave us his words, his laws, it's for us to try to interpret. You know, we we have the text, we have the words of God, but what do they mean? That's now our responsibility. Mm. And the Hebrew forces us to do that because if you look at the what it's you know what the Hebrew Bible looks like, it's just letters. There's no vowels, there's no punctuation, there's no structure to it. Um one sentence like, Am I my brother's keeper in Hebrew? Three words, anochi can be read three different ways, depending on where you put your comma. So what is the one interpretation? The answer is there is no one interpretation. Yeah. The question is, what do you do with the text? And if you get, if you can take the text like an artwork and give it meaning and give it purpose, then it becomes a sacred text. Otherwise, it's just letters. Mm. And so I guess what I would counsel people when they say this is what the Bible says I wouldn't be so fast to say that. I would like to say, what does the Bible tell me? What is it telling me? And if it becomes something that tells you something and you can share it with someone else and they're saying, ah, I get that too, then it's a sacred text. Otherwise, it's just words. Yeah. And then if the fruit of all of that, you know, Jesus talks about the the fruit of the spirit. Um, if the fruit of that is that we love our neighbors better, right? Right. Um, and, and that we create communities that don't... Um, uh, marginalize and oppress other people to, to advantage a few, then perhaps we're beginning to interpret it Correct. <laughs> correctly. But yeah, that's so, so you mentioned uh, in, in that answer um, a word that a lot of folks may not be familiar with midrash. Um, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, I may not be. Um, one of the things I've noticed from just my brief study of um, midrashic tradition is that very rich kind of storytelling foundation. And and I notice in what I read that you write, you know, on your social media posts seems to be um, very faithful to that tradition. So can you talk a little bit about what that is and why it's sure. important? Um, sure. And then I'd like to maybe talk about how we can use um, that storytelling, that Midrash tradition, as we look to form faithful faith communities. Interesting. Sure. There's lots of ways to approach the text, the sacred text in the Jewish tradition. There's something called pshat, which is the simplest of meanings. Okay. The other way is drush, which is interpretation. And within drush, there is this world called midrash. Midrash is telling a story. Because when we see the Hebrew Bible, but you see it in the New Testament, there are these huge gaps in the storytelling. The stories do not really, I mean, if you're, if you were a literary critic, many of these stories fail because they're, they're, yeah. there's not enough flesh to the story. So what the Midrash is, is the rabbi's attempts, and there's two schools of thought about what they're actually doing, is to fill in the lacunas, those gaps. What actually happened? I mean, we start with Abraham, for example, at the age of 75. Well, what happened when he was younger? What happened when he was a boy? You could say the same thing about Moses. You could say the same thing about Jesus. Yeah. A lot of those stories are not there. So some say that Midrash is nothing more that legend, nothing more than legends that were passed down faithfully from generation to generation, starting with Moses. Others believe it was much more free flowing. It was rabbis 
trying to create stories, parables to teach lessons, to fill in or to engage the reader into the overall intent of the text. What's the text really trying to teach us? So these are Midrash, they're stories, they're found in the Midrashim. Some of them are found in the Talmud. And some people believe that to this very day, we create living, living Midrashim, which would be looking at the text and saying, what do you think happened? Um, recently, I did one on the conversation that Abraham and Isaac had going up the mountain. Because the Bible doesn't really give us much. It, mm. Isaac just asked, wait a second, I see the wood and I see the fire. Where's the sacrifice? <laughs> I kind of think that if he's asking that, he might have had some other words in conversation. So what was the conversation? That's a midrash. Now, the rabbis engage in midrash on that story. Okay. And again, are those ancient legends that were passed on faithfully? I don't know. But what's to stop us? to look at this text and bring our spirituality to the table. What do you think is going on in each of their minds? The text doesn't tell us that, but the text might open its secrets to us if you engage it. And from a Jewish perspective, one of the things we do is we look for the pauses in the text. What I mean by that is what's missing, but what's the words before? What did he say? Where, where, did, where could you pause the sentence? And by pausing the sentence in a certain way, Wow, that means he might have been saying this. Now, is that exactly what it's being said? The text doesn't care. God doesn't care. What we care is we're engaged in the text. We're trying to learn and try to mine the secrets that are found in this remarkable story that has engaged generations of Jews and Christians and Muslims for, for centuries. Mm, I, I love that notion that that the engagement is what is important um, and not not the you know the plain reading the the getting the interpretation right but because uh, I've long I've long kind of felt that that was really the point of of sacred texts is to get us to engage and to ask questions you know to to embrace the doubt and the uncertainty oh, I love, that comes with you. it and then engage one another in those conversations if I can jump in one of the words yeah. that I just so appreciate use the words doubt um, I think one of the one of the Achilles heels of, of religion now is this refusal to realize that we don't have to live in certainty, you know, and we want certainty. Human beings want the black and white religion works best in gray. It works mm -hmm. best in, in doubt, in, in questioning in asking a question and not necessarily having the answer, but asking the right question to get you to continue the, the journey. Um, if it's certainty, there's nothing more to talk about. And, and I don't know if that's, that's not been healthy for religion. And we get scared about getting the wrong question that we can't answer as opposed to being excited say, Ooh, let me get back to you. I remember in yeshiva, one of the, one of the most powerful moments I had was when one student asked a question in September to a Rebbe, to one of the rabbis. And he said, that's a good question. Let me think about that. You know, there was a question on the Talmud and Son of a gun, in April, and he opened the class. He goes, remember the question that this kid asked? I've been thinking about that, and I think I have a possible answer. That inspired me. Mm. The question is out there, and the question is should be engaged and loved. And it's not, oh, boy, this is challenging. I don't know. This is good. I, if I don't have an answer right away, that's okay, too. I don't have to have the answer. Yeah. Um, and I think that would engage the younger generation to feel that, 
religion doesn't have to have all the answers, but it has to have the right questions or willingness to get the right questions. Yeah, that's one of the things we say in in our community a lot is that answers are overrated, but questions are really interesting. Exactly. Um, that those are the things that reveal who we are to one another as we try to build relationships to one another. And I'm not so sure, you know, that that reliance on certainty that you mentioned, I, I was thinking as you were saying that, that wondering how much our, our dependence on certainty then begins to drive a fear-based narrative that we live in. You know, if we, if we can't get it just right, God's going to be so angry with me. Um, my community's going to disown me if I, you know, if I express these doubts. Um, and and so we we begin to to collapse into living in fear rather than in the openness that comes with, with authentic doubt and questioning. One time we had a clergy meeting with, uh, it was one of these, it wasn't a dialogue. It wasn't a clergy meeting on inner something uh, in the interfaith community. It was just a bunch of ministers and rabbis sitting around talking. And the question that I asked is what if the critical story of your faith tradition was found to be not correct. For example, there's no evidence of the Exodus from Egypt. Mm -hmm. Jesus didn't die on the cross. Muhammad didn't receive the Quran. Okay. There was never a Muhammad. What do you do? And I remember there's a long pause. And these are all ministers. Okay. And I remember it was Randy Flanagan. Oh, uh, yeah. Randy said, Victor, let's close the door. And we closed the door and it was a very beautiful open dialogue about, first of all, how that doesn't change anything. But the very fact that you can engage in that was very beautiful for me to say that here you see people of, of powerful faith who cherish these stories. And it didn't upset them to hear that question. Not only didn't it upset them, they started playing with that scenario. Like, for example, if, if Jesus wasn't crucified on the cross. Does the story lose any of its power, the beauty of the overpowering love of God? No. Does the If the Jews never left Egypt, it was all a fantasy. It was actually just a, you know, four, four people left Egypt and they created the story. But the idea of freedom, the idea of, of accountability, the idea that people have a destiny to play, does that change? No. And that's the conversation that we have. And and I guess living in gray is is kind of healthy at times because for me, that was a very sacred moment listening to the ministers and the imam and myself sharing some of our heartfelt thoughts about faith without worrying about you know what our congregants would say that we're actually questioning some of the most sacred traditions of our our, our heritage. Yeah, that, that reminds me of a story I heard or read in uh, one of Rob Bell's books. I don't know. If you're how familiar you might be with him, but he um he wrote I think it was in his book Velvet Elvis, um, which was just my favorite title for a book ever when I first came across. <laughs> but he talks about this idea of of the the components of our faith traditions. We tend to view them as as blocks or bricks, you know, in a wall. And if we take one of those blocks out, the whole thing caves in on itself. And the analogy he used was, what if we looked at it more like the springs on a trampoline, right? They're important for, for stabilizing the trampoline, but you can take a spring off the trampoline and you can examine the spring and you can test it on its own, And but the trampoline still works, right? I just, I, I thought that was a really neat metaphor for, for what I just heard you saying, you know. That's, that's good. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Trampoline, so what's his name? Rob, Rob Bell? 
Rob Bell, yeah. I won't forget yeah. Velvet El- Elvis. That's so good. Yeah. <laughs> because we um, we have this uh, – one of the overriding uh, narratives in the Jewish tradition is something called Torah Sinai, that the Torah came from God at Mount Sinai. And, of course, for the more traditional aspects, what that means is the Torah that we have today, uh, the, the five books of Moses, are the exact same words that Moses, peace be upon him, brought to the Jewish people 3,200 years ago at Mount Sinai. Now, that poses a challenge to modern Jews who look at it from a critical analysis of the text and Mm -hmm. realize there seems to be several different pieces of the text. The narrative doesn't flow very well. It's probably a human author. And that's a big divide between traditional Jews and modern Jews in terms of, you know, who wrote the text. Yeah. I wonder, though, based on what you said, I wonder if the rabbis 2,000 years ago, when they coined the idea of Torah Mesenai, was not really you know, Torah from, from Mount Sinai, we're not actually creating this literary thing, literal thing that you've got to believe, but actually giving us a starting point that Mm, the story starts from God, God communicating somehow to a people. And these, this, these are sacred ideas, words, texts, laws, whatever you want to say. But the, but the fact is whether it came from Mount Sinai or not, that's not the critical thing. The critical thing is the message. Uh, for you, the critical thing is the mattress, not the springs, but the yeah. mattress that is being held up by the springs. And, you know, one piece can come off, one rock from Mount Sinai can come off. Maybe not all of it came from Mount Sinai. Maybe this piece didn't come from Mount Sinai. It's okay. Yeah. Well, and these things, you know, and, and just our own, if if we're honest about our own cultural history and we see how ideas evolve over time, why wouldn't that happen with our sacred texts as well? And and why would there be anything wrong with that? You know? Exactly. Yeah. Um, so just, uh, we're getting close to the end of our time here and I, I don't want to hold you too long. I really um, appreciate you spending some time with us. Um, I did want to just kind of get in a quick mention, even though you and I are, are talking on a zoom call here in, um, in mid October, <laughs> this episode is going to air, um, or at least it'll be released on December the 11th, which is right at the beginning of, of Hanukkah, um, which, um, you know, which is just a couple of weeks before Christmas in our uh, Christian traditions. One of the things that I have been thinking about um, for the last few years around these holidays is how, especially with the holidays that fall really close in proximity on the calendar to one another between different faith communities, how do those observations maybe give us some enhanced opportunities for deeper dialogues between our faith traditions? Is there anything kind of specific you can say about that? Sadly, I wish there was more dialogue between Easter and Passover because I think there's Ooh, yeah. more of a good, real, um, there's a much more good spiritual connections between the two. Unfortunately, Hanukkah and Christmas could not be more different. Um, one is a yeah. very, very minor historical holiday in the Jewish tradition. We have lots of holidays and that one's pretty far down. Christmas, of course, is a very significant uh, Christian holiday. Um, it just shows you of how important location is on the calendar <laughs> because yeah. if Hanukkah would have fallen on, you know, sometime in February, no one would be talking about Hanukkah. So we try to force the connections between the two and they're really not there. Right. But the idea of the 
intersectionality of faith traditions. That's why I, I kind of go back to the idea of Easter, rebirth, the idea of a future and hope and Passover. They're so similar. They're rituals, yeah. the Last Supper versus, not verses, but in connection to the Jewish Seder, how important those two stories connect. Um, those are rich traditions. Um, I've enjoyed, and again, I was very reluctant at first, and I have to thank people like Rabbi Kohler of Blessed Memory who kind of pushed me to do those type of things. I enjoy doing Seders for Christians. And not, again, to mimic and say, yes, this is what Jesus would have done, but just to show them what a Jew does on Passover. And when they see that, they go, oh, well, if this is what was going on around this time, I can see the connections. And, and this is how organically Christianity began to understand these symbols. Okay. It doesn't mean that Jews had it wrong. And it doesn't mean that Christianity has, has stolen something, but how we borrow from each other. Yeah. Um, and those, that's where it's really helpful. I, I appreciate you saying that because a lot of times um, what I hear when, when, Christians are doing uh, a Seder ceremony um, is, you know, kind of the accusation of um, cultural appropriation, which I get, like, I understand where that comes from. But if we would look more closely at our own tradition, like, especially in the gospel of Luke and how Luke is retelling the the Exodus and Passover narrative, <laughs> you know, th- mm-hmm. into the death and resurrection story. And I think sometimes we just, we miss those really obvious yeah. um, connections. Uh, what you said about uh, the problem of uh, appropriation, I think the best way to, to solve that is is when both, both well, let's use the example. You're, if a Christian would ask a Jew, help me understand Passover. Yeah. Okay. That's probably the best way to do it. And then the best way for me is to show them this is Passover. Let me show you a Seder. Again, not with the idea that I have to, that's going to be your job to see the connections between Easter and the Last Supper and that that's not my job necessarily. It's almost nice to have a minister alongside where the minister can help a Christian understand those things. But again, with a rabbi as opposed to a minister trying to appropriate. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. Yeah. And the yeah. same thing. I don't want to quote the, the, the New Testament without probably checking with a member of the Christian faith. Because again, it's through filtered through my understanding of the New Testament. Yeah. Wow. I, I wish I wish we would do more of that when we read the Old Testament. To, yeah. Well, we all <laughs> to consult with folks of the Jewish faith to to understand it better. Well, Rabbi, I, I really appreciate the time that you've spent here with me today and um, with our audience. Is there anything else that we haven't covered that uh, that you were hoping to talk about today? Or? There's a lot to talk about, but it went by very fast. Yeah, we've really covered a lot it. of ground here. It's been really fascinating. We, we may have to pick up and uh, and and get together again sometime, to, and maybe around Easter time, we can have that that Passover and Easter conversation. That might Sounds be really good. interesting to do. Well, um, so before we um, before we wrap it up today, is is there anything that you're working on that folks uh, might be interested in? And and where can people find you in this um, this virtual world that we're living in now? If they can't uh, <laughs> come come to your synagogue um, in person, where where can they find some of the work that you're doing? Well, our services are now virtual. So any service that we have, if you want to sign up on B-N-A-I-J-A-C-O-B B-N-A-I-J-A-C-O-B.com, you get our newsletter, just like a church. Um, a lot of people ask whether they have permission to come to a synagogue. And my short answer is I wish more would because they'd see the commonalities. This 
virtual universe is giving us that opportunity for people to be voyeurs of other congregations. Mm. So anybody that would like to see a Sabbath morning service, it's a little bit abbreviated, which means it's good because instead of the two and a half hour service, it's now down to about an hour and 15 because we can keep people only so long. <laughs> um, so people are welcome to join us. We have Torah classes. We have a Talmud class. And again, through the newsletter, you'll find out and everyone is invited and welcome. So that's one avenue. Facebook is where I, I I talk a lot about religious theology, but it's forcing me to talk about it in a far more universalistic fashion because I'm not speaking just to members of my congregation. I'm speaking to people of faith and um, anyone that loves to follow me and uh, you don't have to agree, you can scroll down afterwards, but I always try to have at least one or two different comments about faith today. I'd talk about belief in God. And so if you'd like to join me on, on Facebook, that's certainly, uh, I'd be honored. That's fantastic. I, I personally have come to really appreciate um, your, your Shabbat reflections every week. Um, I, I found that those help me you know, even to strengthen my own understanding of my own faith by by the way that you write things for uh, for your Sabbath writings. So I appreciate, appreciate it. Thank that. you. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks again, Rabbi. Again, it's it's been a joy to have a conversation with you, and uh, hopefully, we can do this again sometime. Appreciate it. Thank you very much for your time. Well, I think Rabbi Yurecki and I could have gone on for hours talking about all of that. He's such a friendly and engaging person. And I hope you'll give him a follow on social media to learn more from the wisdom that he shares there. Remember, as always, you can find all of the content for Accidental Tomatoes online at accidentaltomatoes.com. And across the social media world, you can find us at Accidental Tomatoes. Please be sure to like and follow our Facebook and Twitter and Instagram pages because that's where you can get all of the up-to-the-minute updates of the interesting things that are going on in our community. If you have any ideas or suggestions for future podcast topics or interviews, I would love to hear from you. You can contact us again on Facebook or Twitter, or you can email us at accidentaltomatoes at gmail.com. And again, if you enjoy our podcast, please be sure to give us a rating and a review on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcast. That goes a long way in helping other people find us and connect with our community and participate in our conversation here. And once again, if you'd like to support the work we're doing at Accidental Tomatoes, you can donate through Patreon, where your support helps us to offset some of the expenses of producing content for our community. Just go to patreon.com slash accidentaltomatoes to learn more. So until next time, keep on growing outside the fences and join us for another episode of the Accidental Tomatoes podcast.